Welcome to Fran Path Consulting Podcast. I'm Sam Schweitzer. And I'm Brittany Bodie. And together we are Fran Path Consulting. Hey, Sam. Hey, Britt. How are you? I'm great. How are you today? I am doing well. It's getting sunny. We're into spring, starting to feel good. Yes, I bet you're happy to be out of the single-digit weather there um, in Wisconsin. Yes. I mean, 43 is feeling like burning hot, so we're definitely still in winter weather months, but yes, starting to feel great. Good. You know, something I'm feeling great about is we just filed our business taxes, so tax season, I think that's something that everybody can relate to, the headaches of dealing with that, and I'm thrilled that we got those filed and wrapped up this week. Yes, double-digit temperatures in Wisconsin usually means that I'm writing a check to the United States government. So, <laughs> tis the season. <laughs> um, but, you know, it was funny. We were talking today as we talk about business ownership and, you know, mitigating your tax, tax liabilities and all of those things. Just how many people don't recognize what a great what a great resource, I guess, franchising is to mitigate their tax liabilities. I know. We talk about that, especially, you know, as people get towards the end of the year and they start talking to their accountants or like, what can I do from a from a tax perspective? And even outside of that, you know, when we're talking with folks about investment strategies, you know, one of the things that we hear people talk about is kind of that section 179 eligibility you know, having some write-off benefits when it comes to investing in certain equipment and vehicles, that's something that we have a lot of experience with. And Section 179 is such a great thing for business owners that allows them to depreciate the cost of that equipment during the year. And additionally, we have had a lot of opportunities come up with opportunity tax credits, which is something I don't think we've seen as much in the past. But that's a new one for business owners to take advantage of as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it allows them to kind of go into areas of the market where they're looking to to add value in the community and have growth. And we're seeing that pretty heavily in the laundry space in particular. I know we had Laundry Labs on a previous podcast, and that's something that their franchisees are able to take advantage of from a tax perspective and a write-off capability. And again, they're adding value to their communities, which is great. Yes. And, you know, I think about my husband, we talk about capital gains taxes all the time and private equity. And and we do have an expert with us today in private equity. I think that's a great segue to bring in Sam Scheimer, who is a 30 plus year private equity veteran who has now migrated to the franchise space completely. Welcome, Sam. Uh, thanks for having me, guys. I'm uh, excited to be here. We are so excited to have you on. Um, I've known you for quite some time, and I've been anxious to have you on the podcast. Said to you earlier, I wanted to get a few warm-ups in before I brought in an expert, and I truly mean that. So thank you so much for your time. You know, I'd really love to kick off this episode just having you share more about your background, because you do have a very impressive background first in the private equity space and now into franchising. So tell us a little bit more, if you would, about your background. Sure. Uh, I graduated from college in 1985, so I'm a bit older than you guys. Went to work in New York. I was a finance uh, accounting major at Wharton, and I went into investment banking with a firm that ceased to exist a long time ago called Drexel Burnham, um, which you guys might have read about in history books. And uh, after Drexel, I went to business school, spent a summer in consulting in Boston, and I really felt that banking was very transactional. I closed more than 20 deals at Drexel, and there was really no follow-through consulting. You had no real control in terms of eating your own cooking. And the transition to me to private equity was a natural one. I, I joined the Blackstone Group when I graduated from, from uh, business school in 1989. The, the partner who hired me uh, wound up leaving. There was a very bad deal that happened. And it kind of changed my my life experience at Blackstone. It was a very brutal place to work uh, and then during that time period. And I was recruited to uh, Lazard Frere, which is another big New York uh, investment bank, uh, had a private equity group uh, called Corporate Partners. 
and I was recruited to corporate partners. Uh, and that was a great transition for me. I spent about six years there and was recruited into a Canadian firm to head their New York operation, doing some healthcare investing. And I really was a, you know, it was a great apprenticeship for me between uh, Blackstone and Lazard in terms of just investing and taking a mindset of, of owning a business, you know, making an, an, an investment decision to own it and to maintain it, as opposed to a transactional where you're at a, a banker and you're just you know, raising money and the business moves on and you don't really have any continuity with it. And it really uh, fell, uh, fell in with what I wanted for my career. Um, I spent you know, my, my time in New York with, with Council Corporation was focused mostly on healthcare investing. We got a little bit into telecom and dot-com stuff uh, before that all blew up. And I, I joined J.H. Uh, Whitney, another well-known uh, private equity firm that's been around since 1946 as one of the co-heads of their uh, small business investment company fund. And we did um, a bunch of deals there, um, successful fund um, until the 2008 crash uh, came along. They, the partners at Whitney decided not to raise a successor fund. So I did something which I should have done a long time uh, previously, which was to, to go in and, uh, and start my own fund, uh, which is called SLC Capital Partners. And my close friend and business partner, a guy named Mike Cowan, um, and I started that together in 2010. And we raised a small fund and uh, invested in a company called Honest One Auto Care, which is a franchisor. We also purchased a Jampro franchise uh, for Orlando, and then the East. And we later added the East Coast of Florida into our Jampro franchise. Jampro was a deal. We'll get into this a little bit in terms of franchising, but Jampro was a deal that we closed in January of 2005. We bought the company on a valuation of somewhere between 15 and 17 million, depending upon how you valued the paper. And we sold it three and a half years later for 67 million. So it was a very successful investment and introduction to franchising. It also spoiled me because Jampro is an incredible uh, company. Um, so my standards in terms of franchise investments, I probably would have done a lot more franchising deals if I hadn't been spoiled uh, by Jampro on the way in. But we'll talk about Jampro, I'm sure, in more detail. And then uh, Mike and I um, later uh, got control of Honest One. Um, so Mike is now the CEO of that franchise business. Uh, I'm the chairman of that of that company, which means I get to do my normal role, which is like I was to Rich Kassane and to Jack and Carol at Jampro, a, a strategic advisor. I can't leave out Eddie Curry either from the uh, the, the luminaries at Jampro. Um, uh, I also uh, went to the IFA in 2011 and sat next to a woman who um, we're, we got to talking and she started picking my brain. And I somehow wound up investing in a beauty school franchise called Salon Professional Education Company, which is a very long story. It will take up the whole podcast. But I wound up uh, chairing that company. We closed the investment on December 21st, 2012. And it was going to be a small passive you know, thing where I was going to be an advisor to the team. And it worked that way for seven years till about uh, April of 2019 when one of our partners suddenly uh, retired. And that kind of left a hole in the team. And at that point, I had gotten involved in selling franchises and had gotten very close to a number of our franchise owners. So I, I stepped in as CEO of that business. So imagine at 55 years old, first time in an executive leadership position in a company, we've got about 30 units um, you know, in that business. And it's a, it's, it's, it's a crazy company, but a lot of fun. And uh, so I've been leading that company for the, for the past three years. It was you know, my, my wife passed away in uh, June of 2018, and I really had a bit of a hole in my life, which this kind of enabled me to fill in terms of, you know, uh, taking care of that company uh, and taking care of the team. And, and, and really, again, I try to stay away from the weeds because I don't really know a lot about operating a beauty school, but that's what my partners and our team is, is for. And I'm really still doing the executive leadership, problem solving, legal stuff, assisting in franchise sales and, and having a lot of fun with it. So um, at this point, my partner, Mike, and I have um, a fund that does real estate for Honest One. Um, I really have stepped away from new new investing, although I will look at things reactively as opposed to it being my life. So I'd say at this point, I'm full-time uh, focused on the franchising world and on the companies we have and the transition from a operating or from an investing mindset, which is, you know, when we invested in Jampro in, in January of 2005, we had a strategy in place to build the company and sell it. That's what private equity operators do. You have a wake, you know, you know what you want to do with the business. You don't make an investment and say, oh, now what do I do with this? If you make an investment in a company, you have a strategy built in and then you have to execute on it. And the better you execute on it, and the luckier you get, the better you do on a private equity deal. 
and Jampro had great fundamentals that, that played out in, a, in an amazing way for us. Uh, my view now with the Jampro business that we own, uh, along with Honest One and, and Spec, which I'm involved with, you know, the Song Professional Education Company goes by Spec. That company are, are both long-term investments for me. So Jampro, we sold it for 67 million. Eight years later, it was sold for 113 million. And if you believe the press clippings, another five years after that or four years after that, it sold for 300 million. So it wouldn't have been wouldn't have been great just to hold on to Jampro and build it into a three hundred million dollar business. The, the the deficiency of the private equity model is you have to sell things. You look at the true generational wealth in our economy: the great entrepreneurs, the you know the Walton family, the 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 family that built Hyatt, the Koch brothers. Although you might whether whether they're great or not is a subject to debate in terms of some of their politics. But as business as business leaders, they're certainly awesome. But you know, and you look at Musk or you look at at uh, at Bezos. These are guys that are building empires by building and holding things on a long-term basis and not being transactional. So the thing that drove me away from banking early in my career to something that was more long holding really wasn't that much different than banking in the end, because in order to make private equity work, you have to sell your business, raise raise a new fund and do it all over again. And that's, you know, funds you know, that were around when I was younger are on fund 11 and fund 12 and, and they're machines, fabulously wealthy, successful you know, entrepreneurs. But to me, um, also unsatisfying. So I'm having a lot more fun, um, you know, with my, I, mean, I stayed on the Jam Pro board for uh, two, two turns on the, on, on, on the sale. So most of that time period, even after I sold it, I was still around on the board. I, I exited the board in 2017, uh, even though we sold the company in 2008. So, so, you know, I love that company, still, still a big fan um, of, 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 of the team there. Um, you know, and, and to me, uh, and the team, I mean, the master franchise owner has been turnover in the senior management. I'm fans of theirs too, but the Jampro model is is really, and franchising generally is very an entre entrepreneur-driven business. It's about family wealth creation. It's about controlling your own destiny. It's about it's about um, you know some of the tax benefits that you bring in. I, again, aren't the reason to do it, but they're nice benefits to 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 being the master of your own domain from a tax perspective. But I love franchising. Uh, you know, and I'm sure we'll talk about that as to what I love about franchising, but I'll just shut up now since that was a longer introduction uh, and let you guys guide the conversation. I would have let you talk forever on that. That was absolutely awesome. So earlier in our podcasting, we had my husband on who's in pri the private equity world, not nearly as long as you, and he made some parallels for us. I want to know with 30 years of experience in private equity, why franchising? What makes franchising stand out to you as a great investment? Um, well, I'll have to ask a clarifying question: as the franchisor or as a franchisee? I'm, I'm going I'm to answer it as a franchisor because that's typically where the private equity guys invest. But I also have a perspective from the franchisee since I've been in both worlds. I would love both. So start okay. with franchisor and then give us franchisee. That would be fantastic. Um, so for franchising, first thing I would say is. Not all franchisors are created equal. There's a joke in the franchising industry about yogurt franchisors that every 10 years, well, at least back back when I when I when I got involved, and I'm not sure if they still joke about the yogurt world. But you come in, you know, every 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 10 years, there's a there's a hot little yogurt concept. People knock it off. They rent 800 square feet, and then all of a sudden, there's this mushrooming of of, of yogurt concepts, and the the successful concepts get crowded out the unit economics fall apart there's a lot of of, of hyper sales activity and then 90 percent or more of the yogurt franchisees close everybody waits for about five years and it all starts all over again so i'm very classically trained you know as a wharton undergrad and as business as harvard business school grad so i am very very disciplined in terms of looking at the the competitive dynamics you know of a franchise business so whether it's a franchise business or not a franchise business you're crazy if you don't look at that in terms of what can change and what can happen what are the competitive barriers to entry um, you know etc in 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 a, in a in a business model and there's a first mover advantage you know jampro was a third mover in terms of coverall and janicking but commercial cleaning was a gigantic uh, market um, so you know is is there room for competition in the market and room to take share you know, in a market, and then and Jampro had did a very good job uh, relative to Janet King and Coverall of of positioning themselves to the unit franchisees as franch as master franchisors who gave a crap about the success of the units. They weren't churning accounts. Uh, they weren't you know doing abusive sales practices. You know they you know, it was a family culture that really permeated. And that was one of the things that really attracted me to Jampro. Um, in addition, the caliber of the master franchise owners that they had. And if you look at what makes a franchise business model sustainable, 
And Jampro, under under the time that I was there, started climbing in the franchise 500 rankings. We got up to number 11, I think, was our high point. And we've always you know, stayed between kind of 11 and 25 in the franchise 500. We've been number one in the commercial cleaning franchise space for forever. Um, so, so ultimately, you have to have that quality and that sustainable positioning that, that, that makes a business, you know, a good business model, but it's a franchisor. All franchisors have, forget about the franchise. I really, I'm not a partisan of looking at the business. Some people look at franchise. Well, how much unsold territory do you have and how much can you generate in selling that unsold territory? I'm all about the recurring revenue. I love franchisor business models because, in, you know, Jampro has over a hundred hardcore entrepreneurs who are feeding their families off of the growth of their market, their business. And Jampro is taking you know three to four percent pieces of that revenue stream, highly diversified, and royalties as a franchisor have no cost of sales. There's no you know you have to buy all the auto parts or you have to buy you know the you know the tires in an in an auto auto uh, tire franchise. We have low margin business. It's 100% gross margins. So once you cover your nut, and I remember when this happened to Jampro because it was a three million dollar business that where it was when I bought it, it was making half or more of its money from franchise sales and again carol and jack were master franchise salespeople in terms of what they did and the type of and the caliber of people they attracted and over time we grew the business it was an 80 million dollar system when i invested we grew it to over 200 million you know just three years later we brought in a professional management team who partnered very well with with carol and jack and today jampro is a 600 million dollar system and if you just do the math on the three to four percent royalty that's a huge flow of recurring cash flow that's coming in and Jampro grew every year it was it you know, other than 2008 um, in the setback then it's been a, it's been a machine in terms of recurring revenue growth because of the power of entrepreneurship and Jampro got out of the way for the most part provided marketing and training and support and things that as, as a good franchisor should but they're not you know the franchisor model is driven by the a good a good franchisor model is driven by the franchisees you're attracting talented motivated entrepreneurs clearly they should be capitalistic in terms of their mindset and looking to provide for their families and for themselves in terms of growth but there's also an element of, of, pay, of paying it forward i mean jampro has over ten thousand unit franchisees typically they're they're lower down on the economic scale but these are people who are again likewise buying a unit franchise to be able to support their families and we have franchisees in the jampro system who are billing over a million dollars of revenue and who are employing dozens and dozens of people you know on their cleaning business they're running a cleaning business underneath the master the now i think we're now called region developers in jampro i'm going to always call them master franchise owners because that's what it was always called when i was there and they've moved on from that for obvious reasons as a title but the, you know, the region developers um, you know, care about those units. Similarly, in, in my beauty school franchise, we're very focused on on education, right? We want to play our, our our franchise is the beauty school franchise for L'Oreal and Redken. So our schools are partnered with with those major brands. We are our, our curriculum is infused with their materials, and then ultimately, um, you know, we're trying to place our kids in L'Oreal and Redken focused uh, salons. So for us, our, our, our wise, like Jampro, again, a good Jampro franchise owner is thinking about the, the, the unit franchisees, not selling you know, underpriced business where the unit franchisee can't make money, right? Because the unit franchisee is paying royalties and fees. You have to sell business priced in a way that allows them to make a return on their investment. That's another coverall in Janny King. You know, again, I can't tell you what they're doing today, but this is historical knowledge. I'm not saying anything negative about Coverall and Janneking, but ultimately from a Jampro model perspective, we always wanted to try and price our business so that the units could make money at it and it was a good long-term investment. Our average account in Jampro, I believe, you know, last date I heard was a couple of years ago, but it was with us seven years. So, you know, that long-term recurring revenue business is great for the franchisees. The unit franchisees, it's great for the region developers. And from a Jampro corporate perspective, our account churn was always you know, in the 7 to 15% range on an annual basis when the commercial cleaning industry had 50% account churn. And that's because, you know, again, the, the, the non-franchised business has a lot of service and quality issues, which is why you want to, as a customer, want a, a franchised, you know, business. But even you know the coverall and Janneking and the other, and there's other franchisors now in the in the commercial cleaning space, 
also have issues with underpricing and service and training. We want to be very high quality for our customers. We have great account retention, which allows us then the new business that we're generating is providing growth. We're filling in the small account losses and we're growing from there. And that's been the secret to Jampro success since Carol and Jack uh, founded the place back forever ago. And then, and then for, you know, for, for spec for the beauty school franchise, we provide great education and great placement to our students. You know, there are other beauty schools that are out there. Our, our school is competitively priced, like in the commercial cleaning space. There's only so much you can charge for, for, for a service on the, on the beauty school side. Um, if we're providing a great education to our students, we're going to get more students coming in and we're going to grow. And again, as a franchisor, we're, you know, we've been very slow to grow, um, especially over the last couple of years for specific reasons to the industry. So as, we, as we've grown our revenue and we've double digit, we've uh, grown our admissions across our system. We enrolled 3,500 students last year uh, across our system, which is a lot of lives that we're impacting and changing. And um, we've had 10% plus, you know, same store enrollment growth over the over the last four years. So we do a great job on the admission side and on the education side, and we're impacting the lives of the students. And again, you know, as the franchisor, whether it's in JamPro or in Spec, we're like the third derivative. Sorry to use a nerdy math comment, but you guys were talking about taxes on the way in today. So so ultimately, um, you know, for me, you know, if, if, the, if the student's getting a good education, then my franchisee is getting good enrollment. If my franchisee is getting good enrollment, they're going to be generating revenue and we're going to generate our royalties again with no cost of sales. And, and what we did at JamPro in the beginning was JamPro, when I invested in it, was a very diffuse operation. You know, Anne LaPointe, Jack's wife, was collecting royalties and posting them in QuickBook. Carol was in a different city from Jack. Dennis and Anita were in different cities from each other. And that was it. That was the whole team. And we established a corporate office, um, you know, for the company. We hired a CFO. We hired additional trainers. And over the first couple of years that we owned it, I'm not going to talk about profitability. I don't think it's appropriate to talk about profitability here, but 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 we we didn't grow the bottom line of the business terribly much because we were investing in infrastructure. And that that's a fixed cost. I mean, bonuses are variable if you have compensation arrangement. You know, there's you know, some travel is variable. So leave leave that minor stuff aside. The flow through to a franchisor of marginal revenue growth, whether it's franchise, you know, sales or royalties, the marginal flow through at the marginal dollar comes almost all the way through to the bottom line. So, you know, you get to the point where you're growing your revenue by a million or two dollars, a million or two million a year on the top and your expenses aren't moving. That's going to go right through to the bottom line of the business. And that's part of why the value of JamPro has increased so substantially over the last over the last few years. They also got into other businesses to leverage off of that in corporate infrastructure they built for JamPro, which is the other thing that um, the later owners of the company you know, did, something that we wanted to do. But um, you know, the, the second owner of JamPro was not, uh, you know, with the recession, was not inclined to do that. The third owner, Incline Partners, did it very smartly. And then the uh, folks that bought it from Incline are continuing that strategy, which is, I think, very, very smart. Um, they're going to have a very successful company on their hands. Uh, but, you know, Honest One is a, is a, is a bit of a different model than the first two and honest one in a lot of ways is probably the most exciting thing you know that i'm involved in because auto care is an essential service um and looking at that um again we've got the recurring revenue model we've grown our average store revenue from about six hundred thousand dollars when we first invested in the company in 2011 today it's over a million two in terms of average store revenue we have four or five stores last year that exceeded two million dollars uh in revenue and and those those stores um, again, like the, the beauty school model and the jam pro model, um, auto care has, has attractive, um, contribution margins, but, you know, ultimately the, the, you know, you, you can, you can research it, but the gross margins in the store are, are, are attractive relative to a lot of businesses. So once you get to that break even number, your fixed costs are pretty much there. There might be some bonuses and commissions at the margin that'll, that'll, that'll take the marginal revenue coming through, but that marginal contribution dollar flows to the bottom line. And again, going back to why franchising for me as a franchise, what makes a good franchise versus not unit economics. I mean, and whether you have a, a store, bricks and brick and mortar store like we have in, in Honest One or in Spec or a, you know, you know, the JamPro has has an office, but we don't really have a brick and mortar structure. You can open them very quickly. A lot of the service based franchisors are very much easier to get into than than retail you know, customer facing uh, type businesses. So it's a different type of investor, different type of capital requirement, different kind of mindset in terms of you know, the importance of site selection, uh, et cetera. Uh, but but for Honest One, uh, the unit economics are outstanding um, once you get to you know past that break even. And our, as our store base has seasoned, we've seen that same store growth. Again, we've had uh, 
high single digit same store growth for forever um, in honest one with the exception of the recession year but none of our stores closed we were all in essential service but you know volume traffic you know driving miles went way down in 2020 that had an impact on the stores we grew right through it and had a, had a record year last year uh, you know in 21 so so ultimately um, you know and again for honest one it, it's kind of a very arrogant name if you think about it because you're putting honest Okay, car you know car service is not viewed by consumers as the most uh, consumer friendly, honest, high integrity uh, uh, business model. And Honest One puts you know in its name a very important part of its mission statement, which is transparency to the customer, honesty and integrity to the customer, selling them what they need when they need it. Sixty five, and we also have a very high quality um, and with, and even better with, with our new prototype. Uh, presentation to the customer. So 65% plus of our customers are women, um, you know, because we we are, are very consultative in what we do. We're very, we explain what we're doing. We don't say little lady, let me tell you what you need to do and, you know, and talk down to our consumers. You know, we, we, you know, we train against that type of behavior. And, and ultimately, you know, if you look at industry averages, you're probably still seeing independent car care, you know, Mike's Garage, that does you know five, six, seven hundred thousand dollars of revenue, and it's a small shop, and the guy's making a nice living, and he doesn't really care if you come back to his store. Our business is a recurring revenue business. It's not coming in once a month to get your hair cut and colored, but it's once every three to four to five months to come in to get your car service. Your car is your, either your most valuable investment if you don't own a home or your second most valuable investment if you do. And the average car on the road is 12 years old. So, so a 12 year old vehicle. Yeah. 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 You see, see, Sam, you buy new cars. I saw that look on you. You're, you're, you're a new, you're, you know, you're not, you like the smell of the new leather. You know, you know a lot of people, you know, you know, a, lot of, a lot of people like to have the, the um, you know, again, once a car has been paid for, the cost of ownership for a, a car that's preventively maintained in the, in the right way is, is um, a terrific investment. You can pay $1,000, $1,500 a year. You're not spending $300 or $400 a month on your car payment. You're, ta- you're bringing your car in a couple times a year. You're following a preventative maintenance plan. And, you know, I, have a, I had a nine-year-old Infinity, which I eventually finally got rid of much cheaper to own a nine-year-old infinity than to buy a new infinity um the lexus that i bought to replace it is a 2013 car uh, and 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 ultimately it drives just fine it doesn't have the latest whiz bang sensors and technology at some point I'll, i'll buy a tesla like everybody else seems to be buying but but for me now um it's uh you know it's exactly what i need and from a financial perspective it's a smart uh investment as long you know again we're we're focused very much on safety um, first, so we'll, we we do a 23 point inspection when you bring your car in to be serviced, and we will tell you everything that's going on with your car. And it's a digital inspection. We'll take pictures of of the areas you know either that are doing that are fine or not fine. We'll give you a report on that, you know, saying okay, it's you know, and very simplistic, you know, yellow, you know, you know, green, yellow, and red. If something's red, it's something that you need to act on today. And we'll tell you why you need to act on it today. If it's something that's yellow, your brakes have three to 5,000 miles before you ought to think about replacing them. And if you go eight to 10,000 miles, you might have a much more expensive brake repair than if you, if you take care of it on a preventative basis. So again, it's the same kind of argument, which is we take care of the customer. And if we take care of the customer in the right kind of way, they're going to be loyal. They're going to come back. They're going to refer their friends and, and we're going to help them in a very positive consultative way. And our, our stores are as attractive as any dealer that you would bring your car to, but our car, our services are priced well below uh, dealer levels. And again, is it 15% below dealers or 30% below dealers? Probably depends on the kind of car that you have and it probably depends on the market that you're in, but we're well below the dealers. We're always competitive with the independent car care guys. Again, there might be some of the local guys that, you know, that are, that are, you know, the $500,000 shops where you might be able to get something done less expensively on an apples to apples basis. But the, you know, we have a 36 mile, a 36 month warranty on a lot of our work that comes through a you know, third party. So we stand behind our work. Um, we're, and, and, and you know that we're selling you what you need to be sold. We're not trying to talk you into do, doing something. And, you know, you hear horror stories about people go to an independent car care shop where they're recommending, you know, thousands of dollars worth of work on things that were just done three months ago or six months ago, because that, that integrity, that customer relationship isn't there. And for me personally, I'm not going to get involved in any businesses that that operate like that. That was one of the things that attracted me again with my very high standards to Honest One um, as an investor. It was the second or third investment that we made in our in our in our in our in our personal fund, you know, that we raised that Mike and I raised, and why we stayed with it as long as we have. And we wound up cutting a deal 
with the CEO who retired um, to buy his stake. And Mike went in as CEO, which Mike was Mike has got an operating executive background from Purina early in his career, all the way through uh, fund level activities as the CFO of Whitney, um, and then and then he became my partner in the. Uh, in the green tree, you know, fund with Whitney and he's, you know, super, super one. He's a great guy. He's one of my best friends, but he's also a really talented operating executive and very complimentary to each other. And he drew the short straw on honest one um, and became CEO of that company when Jack retired. And we moved the company to St. Petersburg where we live and have rebuilt the team and are building the systems and the training and the support to really accelerate the growth of that business as we come out of, out of the, uh, out of the pandemic and super excited about it. But again, it's all a recurring theme. It's high margin, it's recurring revenue, it's sustainable competitive advantage and the things you would look at in any business. Uh, but then you get into the entrepreneurship element of it and who are the right owners for a business, who are the right operators for a business? Are they well capitalized? Do they have the commitment? Are they passive? You know, do they want to be passive in a business where they need to be active? Do they have an operating partner if they want to be a passive investor who they can trust to be day to day? Because if we do especially in the site selection side of the of the bricks and mortar businesses if we pick a location for a site and build that site that site's going to be successful if we're doing our job as the franchisor and again you get unlucky and you know somebody opens something you weren't expecting so things happen but if the location isn't doing well it's the entrepreneur who's not following through isn't following the training isn't following the systems isn't committed to the business is a bad manager uh, because businesses that have teams need to be managed and, and and partly you want to be a good franchisor is that not you know again the classic if they can fog a mirror we'll sell them a franchise you know we don't do that in any of our businesses we try to find people we try to weed out the people who aren't going to be successful to protect them yes but to protect ourselves as well because you spend a lot more time with your troubled franchise owners than you spend with your with your with your um, successful franchise owners the successful owners are following the model they're tra they're going to the trainings um you know they're rolling out the programs that you know the, you know the promotions and the things that you're that you're that you're sending out to people and doing what they're supposed to be doing to build their businesses in the right way so we're um again that's a key part of franchising and you know learn that from you know starting with carol um who was dogmatic um you know on that um you know to jack to rich to you know you know the people that you know that i've, I've admired in this industry over the years so um, I love franchising, you know, and 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 I'll, last thing I'll say on the franchising, franchise e piece of it, um, you know, is you know for me, uh, you know, I'm a second generation American. My father um, you know, was was born in Brooklyn in 1931. Uh, his my grandfather had a vegetable market, and my dad you know went to went to law uh, went to uh, UCLA. They moved to California, went to UCLA, went to UCLA Law School, was a very successful attorney in Beverly Hills, and became a judge. And that's one generation in this country. And this country is built on, you know, on entrepreneurship, on the ability to get ahead. You know, if you work hard, you know, you don't have to be the smartest, you know, guy or gal, you know, in the in, in the room, I guess I could say, or they in the room, because I've got to be politically correct now uh, in terms of, 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 of gender, gender, you know, norm stuff. Um, so you don't have to be the smartest, you know, he, she, or they, uh, but ultimately you, you have to be hardworking and you have to follow a model. And, and the thing about franchise is you get the systems, you get the model, you get the training, you get the expertise, you get the community of other you know, brother and sister franchise owners who are who are you know successful and want to help you if you pick up the phone and call them. Um, you have annual fran you know, you know, conferences for your for your team. You have, you know, again, this whole world has gotten very Zoom connected, the the ability to connect with your other franchise owners to learn from them. But if you come into a franchise and think you're smarter than the franchise or you're not, I can promise you that you're not. If you're a great entrepreneur, you can innovate around the edges of what a, a, a um, successful model is doing. And the best franchisors learn from the franchisees. Jampro developed something um, called EnviroShield back you know, 15, 12, 15 years ago under, under Rich Kassane's leadership. And it was a disinfecting solution that was you know, that um, our franchisee, um, you know, in, in, in Cleveland, whose name is escaping me at this, at this moment, if he's listening to the call ever, I apologize. Uh, it'll come to me after I hang up the call. Terrell uh, Dillard, right? Terrell Dillard. Thank you very yep. much. <laughs> but, but Terrell, at least I'm giving him credit. I'm not taking it for the, for the franchise or Terrell yep. came up with EnviroShield. We rolled it out and it was a teeny, tiny, tiny, minor thing of what we did until this thing called, uh, uh, not the Delta variant. What the hell? I'm not, I'm not completely blanking on the pandemic, whatever the pandemic is called. Um, help me out. COVID? COVID-19. COVID yeah. Wow. 
that's 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 a senior moment. It's only been going um, on for two years, Sam. <laughs> yeah, I know. Well, you know, but I, 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 I'm on Omicron. I was going to say Omicron, but then I was saying Delta. I'm like, okay, what what preceded Delta? <laughs> um, uh, Envirus Shield saved the JamPro franchise owners uh, in 2020. The numbers went berserk on disinfecting, and it you know, and I think it's part of what helped uh, the uh, the last owner sell the business for three hundred million dollars. Unfortunately, disinfecting is not a you know a permanent part of our business at the levels it was in in twenty twenty. But it was you know a fantastically uh, profitable and important part of the business. And that was not developed by corporate. Corporate can't take any credit at all, except for the branding of it, that we came up with the EnviroShield brand. But the idea itself for disinfecting as part of a commercial cleaning service came from one of our franchise owners. And at, at Honest One and at Spec, we get great ideas from our franchise owners. We listen to our franchise owners. They're invested in the business. They're our partners in the business, although legally I've been told by by our attorneys, we can't call them partners because that implies a legal arrangement that franchising is not. But from an operational mindset perspective, you know, they're in it with us and they're, they're at a different level in the corporate structure, but we need our franchise owners to be able to come through, um, you know, and, and, and operate their businesses, you know, consistent with the model to think about how to make their business better. Um, and then if you're a smart franchisor and you're looking at the numbers, and you see something going on um, and you're doing regular support calls, you're asking them and you're learning from them and you're rolling it out. So, you know, you do beta tests of new products and ideas with the franchise owners. You listen to them for ideas on, on what's successful. And again, I'm, my model is not like these faster growing, you know, they're adding 30, 40, 50, you know, franchises in a year or more and selling 10 packs. You know, we're, we're you know, on, honest, both honest one, and I can't really speak to, to our Jam Pro Master franchise because it's a fundamentally different business. But Honest One and um, and Spec are both facilities-based, you know, seven-figure investment facilities to to get them open. There's you know real estate lead times, um, you know, site selection, you know, you know, you're finding the right sites that'll work um, in a market, finding a financially qualified franchise owner. So if we can open five to ten locations a year, maybe 15 to 20 when we really get going um, on both models, that would be, you know, exciting for us um, and tremendous growth. I mean, both businesses are, are well set, you know, well past seven figure um, annual annual revenue uh, goals and can get into the two to three million dollar you know, range for super successful locations, you know, very profitable and, and great economics. So 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 for me, um, you know, I want to build a long term healthy you know, no plans to sell other either business. Um, not a private equity manager anymore. Um, and 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 ultimately, I think um, flipping over to the franchisee side of things. You know, you know, what do I think about as as a franchisee? I mean, ultimately, um, I, I've invested in a couple of the beauty schools in my system. So I've taken a franchisee mindset in terms of eating my own cooking as well. Um, you know, with with Honest One, we've opened a couple of locations uh, corporately, uh, which hadn't been done before. Uh, Mike and I took over the company. So eating our own cooking there, um, you know, and even, um, you know, for, um, you know, for JamPro, you know, buying that, you know, I, I bought that market, um, invested in originally and bought and had eventually had control of it. Um, you know, when I was still on the board of JamPro. So I'm still of the mindset, going back to my original decision to be a principal investor, that, you know, you want to be an owner operator and, have, and take a long-term view. And if I'm going to sell a franchise to somebody, I think having some sense, at least not necessarily about getting in the store and operating it, but as an investor, you know, does the model get hit? Do the, what kind of numbers do you make? You know, you know, you know what works, what doesn't work? And, and you get very close much closer to the operators, especially in the beauty school, when you're a co-investor with people who've bought franchises. So you, you know, you learn from them. But, but to me, you know, I start with integrity. Um, you know, you know, who are the franchisors? Who are the people whose names? Who are the franchise sellers? You know, in that FDD. Um, you know, and you know, you know, you, you got to look at their backgrounds. You got to look at criminal history. You got to look at you know, you know, at, at past successes uh, that they've been involved in. Um, but most importantly, is integrity. Do you trust? Uh, the franchise or do they follow through, you know, franchise validation, critically important, you know, you know, as you guys know, every, every franchise owner in our systems are listed in our FDD with their contact information. And I always encourage um, our franchise prospects to speak to our franchise owners. Um, you know, I said, look, you can call anybody in the FDD and if they want to say, okay, well, who's, you know, whose markets are like my markets or who's, you know, who, who's going to talk to me more about the economics because we don't make any, you know, economic disclosures. Uh, we don't have item 19s. Um, well, actually, we do an honest one on the revenue side, but for spec, we don't have an item 19 yet. I think we will this year. Uh, but um, ultimately, you know, you want to talk to the franchisees and say, okay, do these people follow through um, with what they're saying? 
Um, I look at the organization chart. Um, you know, if it's an entrepreneur, you know, and a bag, a bag of peanuts um, at corporate, you know, the, the and, and you've got a system that's selling a lot of a lot of locations, who's going to train these locations? Who's going to support these locations? Who's going to answer the phone, um, you know, when there's a problem? And are they answering the phone when there's a problem? And how does that uh, training and onboarding work? Got to go level deeper. What do the training and onboarding systems look like? Is there you know, a document, a central document repository, a video training repository? How much of the training is individualized and how much of it is scalable and replicable? So if you have a question, we've got a couple thousand documents on Spec Central um, at the Beauty School franchise. We have a similar you know, document training repository that's getting beefed up even, even further at Honest One. You have to have those training resources. Um, you got to look at failure rates um, within the franchise, you know, who's closed. You gotta look at why they've closed. You know, again, there's 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 lots of reasons why franchisees fail. Uh, but you know, when I started at business school, um, they did a survey of a couple of questions for the incoming class at my business school, and they asked everybody in the class, "Do you think you're going to finish in the top half of your class?" And I think 98% of the students thought they would finish in the top half of the class. Um, and again, you've got a bunch of 20-somethings who thought they could, they were going to conquer the world uh, with little perspective, who thought they were going to be that successful. Um, but I think franchising is a little bit of the same thing. And, you know, Rich Kassane is a, was a very smart guy. Um, once said to me, he goes, you know, Sammy, he called me Sammy. He's one of the few people who called me Sammy. But, you know, Britt knows, Britt knows Rich, so she could hear. She, she probably heard him call me Sammy. Oh, goes, for sure. <laughs> he, goes, he goes, Sammy, he goes, let me tell you about franchise sales. I can tell you 10 franchise prospects who I thought were going to be stars and 10 who I thought would be okay but not great. And I'll tell you, some of the ones I didn't think were going to be great are superstars and some of the ones I thought were going to be fantastic aren't. And, you know, again, you want to have successful franchise owners. Not everybody's going to get an A, they might get a B, but you want to make sure that, you know, you've got the capitalization, the commitment, um, the relevant skill set, the management skill. Again, if you're, if you're leading a team, um, you know, in the right side, right kind of way. Um, and, you know, and, and as a franchisee, there's a lot of choices out there where there are 3000 plus franchisors, you know, that are out there and how you guys go through and screen down to, you know, where people's interests are, where their passions are. I mean, again, for, for me, um, in, in both of our businesses, again, the, the, the ethical, you know, side of what we're talking about, the integrity side, if somebody's in it to make money, it's all about making money. Tell me about the unit economics and, you know, I don't care about the people um, side of things. They're not going to be a good fit uh, for how, for how we do things. I mean, you know, it doesn't have to be, um, you know, kumbaya and pay it forward you know, as the number one, two, and three aspects of what people are doing. But most of our, our owners in our in our beauty school business are salon owners. And the beauty industry is a very huggy, very woo-woo. You know, my late wife was a very woo-woo uh, woman and, and uh, didn't graduate from college. And she loved that most of our, our, our uh, students were young women who weren't going to college. Um, and, you know, if you get the right kind of cosmetology or esthetician degree, you can come out and be making $35,000, $40,000 a year within a year of graduating from high school while their friends are going into debt at college and very quickly be making fifty, sixty, seventy thousand dollars $70,000 a year. Now, is it, you know, the, you know a, a, a $250,000 a year job? No. But for the, the education level and for the career aspirations of the students, they're, you know, they've got a car, they can afford a mortgage, they can support their kids, you know, they can contribute to a household. You know, ultimately, you know, from, from their perspective, it's a terrific career opportunity. Um, and Deborah loved that. It was a fantastic thing from her perspective. And for me, you know, I, I part of why I took on the chairman of the CEO role at that company was just to honor her and to, you know, to follow through, you know, on the business to, to make sure that we did our best for the students. And anybody coming into the business who looks at students as a bunch of widgets and doesn't care about the education piece of it, they're not going to be a good franchise owner. Um, and frankly, they could do some things as a franchise owner that could damage our reputation. And, and as a franchisor, we have to be very mindful that what happens at one location, you know, if, if, if you have one, one honest one franchise owner who's screwing consumers and you get a you know, really bad article somewhere, you know, you know about, you know, about, you know, on, the honest one in quotes, you know, you know, and everything else. So, again, we're very dogmatic about the practices and, and how we want our, 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 our franchisees to face, you know, their ultimate customer, whether it's a, a, it's a, a woman with her 
eight-year-old, you know, Toyota uh, on one side, or it's a 19-year-old, you know, young woman who wants to, you know, you know, be an esthetician, you know, and even on, you know, on the JamPro side of things, somebody who's trying to pick up a second job to make money, you know, cleaning at night to support their support their family. We want to be able to to treat all of those people with a high level of integrity, and that's something again, if it fits in your mindset as a franchise prospects, it's prospect, it's something you need to diligence and make sure because I can tell you damn well sure that our companies are going to be diligencing that about you. We don't, you know, sell franchises, we award franchises. Franchises are not something that can be that can be given out, you know, you know you're not going into Walmart and okay, which of the 3000 franchises am I going to pick today? You know, this is a club and it's a family and it's a culture and it's an approach to to um, interacting with fellow human beings, you know, whether they're, you know, again, I always talk to my kids about golden rule when they were growing up. And ultimately, we've got to treat our prospects. Again, that's one of the things about the commercial cleaning industry, which I always hated, was that churning of accounts. There's an ultimate you know, disrespect of the franchise owner if you're willing to do that to make a buck off the back of you know, somebody who's trusted you to put them in business. If they're doing a good job. It's their account, and they should keep it for a decade and generate the wealth you know, that comes along in building their business. And, and you know, um, so to me, that's one of the first things you know, I would say you want to dig into the unit economics. You know, some you know, you know, some franchisors have item 19s with P and Ls in them. They're typically more mature uh, franchisors than than younger franchisors. It's tougher for a young franchise to feel confident enough in an item 19 that they can put that together. But it doesn't stop the franchisees from talking to you if you have a little bit of charm and personality and persuasiveness when you're doing your validation calls. You can certainly talk to people and get them talking. And, and, and get them talking, talk to them. What's gone right in this business? You know, has the franchise or followed through? What do you like about it? What do you wish you had known on your way into it? Are you making money? How long did it take you to get to break even? You know, and some franchise owners will say, you know what? I don't really, franchisees won't, I don't really want to talk about my financial stuff. But a lot of your franchisees are willing to talk about it. Um, and, 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 and that's great diligence because as the franchisor, you don't want to make those representations if you don't feel comfortable, if council won't let you make the representation, you're going to cause yourself legal harm by making financial representations. And again, you guys know that, but for people who are listening, you know, the legal legal claims on 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 uh, financial representations, you know, can can bankrupt a franchise or if they're if they're doing it. So just just you know, don't and be wary. By the way, of franchisors that are making extravagant promises because they're trying to get you to to to, to close, and you know, and and you don't really want to lose a lot of money and have a legal claim against a bankrupt entity because you know. That's going to be, you know, that's not going to get you very far in life. So be careful um, with young franchisors in terms of what you're doing and look at their, you know, their background and reputation. One of the things about Mike and me at Honest One is, you know, private equity guys for 30 years, we're very disciplined, we're very logical, uh, we're very methodical in terms of what we're doing because, you know, when we restart the growth engine at Honest One, which is coming in the next year or two, we're going to have everything locked down in terms of our business model, our training, our support, our strategy, and we'll be able to talk to you about it. We'll be able to take you to our model stores and show it to you. And we're going to be very picky about who we choose, you know, as our franchisees, because we're going to continue to build out the Tampa market, you know, where we are, but we want to grow into the Southeast and another you know, major markets around the country over time. And, but we're going to do that very, in a very, logical, you know, find a partner in a, again, I can't say partner. Sorry, Ron, I said partner again, but we're going to find a franchisee who shares our vision, you know, in a market who's not going to be a one-off marginally capitalized franchisee. I want to find a guy who's got 15 restaurants, you know, he's got you know 15 Burger Kings. He understands franchising. He understands, um, you, know, re, you know, retail uh, businesses and will appreciate the systems and the quality and the differentiation, you know, of our brand because auto care, has tremendous barriers to entry. There's a significant cost in opening a location in the right in, in the right location and getting it built, especially with what's happening with construction costs around the country right now. So for us, you know, finding that franchise you know, as a franchisee, it doesn't have to be me, right? But it's finding that franchise or who's got the the who has the right answers to the right questions, the tough questions, and can and can give you logic and facts to support their perspective behind it. It's not a bunch of BS and hot air because salespeople galore around this industry. And I know you guys. I heard one of your podcasts where you're talking about a trip to Florida, talking to you know you know you know hundreds of franchisors at an event. Uh, you know, ultimately, 
Um, there's lots of salespeople out there in this industry. Um, you know, Carol and Jack back in the day, you know, were selling franchises to you know, to pay their overhead. Um, yeah, I'm not saying they were full of hot air. They had a great brand, but ultimately, you got to sell. And you know, Jack in particular is a master uh, master salesman. Um, you know, I mean, he could sell ice to Eskimos. And ultimately, you know, for me, that's you know, that's a great thing about the industry um, because you want to have a salesman and a visionary like Jack. You want to have a nuts and bolts operator like Carol who can take a, a business model you know, fuse it into something and then bring in the professional managers and the private equity partnership to take it to the next level. Jampro is a huge success story in the private equity world and I'm, you know, super proud of it. So um, probably more points to make with regard to the franchisor's decision, but again, I'm sucking all the air out of the conversation. So um, I'll let you redirect with a question that hopefully will help move this forward in a way that you like. No, that was great information. You know, there were a couple of things that you said that I really loved. And one was saying that it's a mutual valuation process. You're not just going to Walmart and picking up what you want off the shelf. That's something we stress on the front end with our clients is this is a mutual valuation process, just like you're evaluating the franchisor, the franchisor is evaluating you. And that's a lot of what we hope to bring to the table is making a good match and providing the coaching to our client to make sure that they land in a system that's going to be a right fit for them. The other thing that I really loved that you said when you were talking about Jampro, when you invested in Jampro and you guys took it over and you invested heavily in putting a corporate office in place, executive management, more trainers, all of those investments, I think it really shows that the brands that you're making investments into, you're making sure that you've got the infrastructure and support in place. Because like you said, the value that you get in buying into a franchise system is the training, is the support, is the network, and being able to leverage what the franchisor has. So I think you made some incredible points. You know, I think it's kind of evident to me what some of your why is, but we always ask our clients on the first call, what is your personal compelling reason for franchise ownership? Why do you want to look at franchising? So I'd love to just understand your why, Sam. You've invested in franchising from basically every perspective. So what is your why? Um, I touched on it. Um, a lot of my why goes back to my dad um, who passed away last year. Um, you know, this is a great country, uh, you know, and the opportunity that it affords people um, who believe in themselves, who are willing to invest in themselves, who are willing to take a risk, who want to build something. Franchising is really, you know, and I, I say this in, in our Discovery Day presentation for uh, the beauty school franchises, I want a slide that says it's the ultimate American business model because it's it partners an entrepreneur with systems and training and support and gives them the opportunity you know a, a smart franchise investment again i'm going to go financial nerd on the two of you guys but it's about generating an attra attractive return risk adjusted return on capital so you're, you're you're investing six figures typically um in a franchise shouldn't necessarily be seven but you know it, you know there's very you know few franchisees franchise businesses that you can get into uh, for less than $100,000 when you look at equipment and build out and startup losses and everything else. So let's call it a six-figure investment. It's a large investment. You know, again, I was listening to uh, to uh, Justin and Cliff talking about, one of them talked about going home, you know, talking to their spouse, you know, about and being able to, you know, you, you, ultimately you're, you're saying to your, your family, I believe in myself enough to be an entrepreneur and I'm smart enough to find a business model and a franchisor who I think can give me a much higher probability of success. I mean, you look at, you can open a hamburger restaurant or you can open McDonald's if you can find a McDonald's to buy these days, but you can or, or open a Shake Shack or whatever whatever concepts that are out there. That Those systems, that training, that branding is going to improve your probability of success. And I say to my franchise prospects in the beauty school, you can open a beauty school. You don't need us to open a beauty school, but here are the reasons you know why. And if you, you know, that you should think about, you know, regulatory pressures and admissions and online recruiting and things that, you know, that, that we do and systems that we give you, you know, but ultimately, you know, we charge a 6% royalty um, in that business. If we generate three to five more students than you could generate on your own, forgetting everything else that we do over the course of a year, we're going to pay our royalties because that's marginal income, marginal dollars to you. And you're getting the rest of everything we offer you for free. And if you don't believe that we can gen help you generate five more enrollments than you can do on your own, don't buy a franchise from us, please. Okay, go do it yourself and good luck. Thank you. Um, so, so, so to me, 
you know, my why is, is about creating entrepreneurial success, um, you know, and giving people that opportunity. And secondarily, it's, you know, and again, it's, it's part and parcel of it is to give that high quality customer outcome, whether it's to your unit franchise prospect, you know, your, your auto, you know, your auto, auto shop owner, you know, or your, or your student. I mean, you want all those, all those constituencies to succeed, um, you know, because of the systems and the care and the love that you bring to it. That's, you know, that's, that's my why. And it's, you know, and it's, um, you know, again, I'm third derivative. If we build successful businesses, yes, I'm building valuable businesses that has value to me at this stage in my life and my career. I care much more about the psychosocial woo-woo aspects of success than I care about the, you know, we're going to get to a hundred units by 2027 and we're going to sell this thing for, you know, X millions of dollars. You know, it's, it's not about that. There's no, there's no agenda. Being out of the private equity world as an owner of a business gives you the freedom to take a long-term view of what you want to accomplish. And, you know, everything's for sale at a price eventually, but it's going to be because it's the right time, the right, you know, and I'm not going to sell this any business I'm involved in to just anybody, you know, again, if they're not going to care for it and love it the way that I do, then I'm not going to let, I'm not, I'm not going to sell it to them. You know, ultimately you have to have that kind of, you know, somebody who's going to buy into your vision, your passion, your caring about what you do to make it special. And if it's not special, why be involved in it? That's, you know, if it's just about a buck, you know, that's not my, that's my way, not my way. So no. That's so refreshing to hear a franchisor say that it's really the woo woo appeals to so many more people, I think, than it used to. We hear a lot more woo-woo in the why. And just what a powerful story about your family and really making your own way. I mean, that is, it truly is the American dream. So you touched on the why, and I'm guessing that your advice may come from your dad, but I would love to hear the best piece of advice that you have ever received throughout life, your career, all of it. Um. Sam, you're very wise. <laughs> um, the best piece of advice was from my dad. Um, he said it to me at a very young age, and I've tried to live my life around it, um, which is no one can take your integrity from you but you. Um, and, you know, you know, there's, people can take lots of things from you. People can abuse you in all sorts of ways in an employer relationship. You know, if, you know, and, and I've worked for some people. I've worked for several people who are billionaires um, who were not among the nicest people. Um, you know, I've ever worked for and they're, you know, stress inducing, um, and just, you know, they weren't good life experiences for me. Um, you know, and, and, and if I'm going to get involved in something, I'm not saying any of them ever asked me to take my, you know, ever tried to take my integrity, although I had a couple of, couple of instances where I could say that they did. Um, uh, but no, um, you know, and, and I think, um, again, I, I touched on integrity earlier, so you're probably not surprised I come back to this one as a closing, uh, point, but you know, it was my dad's you know, point of view and I've said it to my kids. Um, you know, that choice, when you, when you give up your integrity, you've given up a piece of your soul and, you know, and, and you can't take it back and you're regretting it. You're second guessing yourself as you're doing it. And, you know, and people go to jail for, for, for giving up their integrity. Uh, people go into financial ruin for giving up their integrity. People's reputations are ruined for giving up their integrity. And, you know, and, and again, it might be to make a buck. It might be because they're under pressure. It might be because they're a salaried person, you know, and they've got a family to support and they didn't have, a, you know, they didn't have a choice in their mind. You know, if you're an entrepreneur and you're and you're driving your own business and everything else, you know, again, it's you know, you know, admitting a student into your into your school, you know, working with a customer, you know, you know, your reputation as a business can get destroyed by you know making a wrong decision, you know, once. And you always want to operate from that high position. You know, there's a there's a, a leverage that comes from being a high integrity, you know, individual, having morals, having um, a perspective that, you know, I'm, I'm sounding a little preachy with regard to it, but, but ultimately, um, if I sound preachy, it's because you don't want to hear what I have to say. And the people who, who, who resonate, that resonates with understand. And, and I think like the fact, and those who know me and have known me for a long time, you know, understand that about me. So, so that's easy. Um, uh, my dad was a fountain of advice, um, and, uh, and mentorship. Um, and I've worked for some, you know, brilliant, um, you know, private equity minds, um, I've worked with some great executives, you know, and I've tried, you know, in stepping into the role as a business owner, 
um, and as a chief executive officer, which I said I hadn't done, you know, I've, I've been advising CEOs for 25 or 30 years. Um, and, you know, when I was a junior guy, there were other people advising the CEOs. So I'll give myself a 10 year break, you know, before I was actually in a position where CEOs might take me seriously. And I had to be like 35 and have at least a couple of gray hairs before anybody wanted to listen to what I had to say. But, you know, but ultimately, um, you know, I'm a, a product of, of the people I've been around. You know, starting with my dad, starting with the executives and people I've learned from. And I'm just trying to be um, the best I can be in the role um, and be able to put my head down on a pillow every night and not have any regrets in terms of what I do. So integrity is number one on that list. But there's a whole bunch of things in terms of business practice, practices and logic that are, are, are associated with that kind of mindset that I think go into how we're trying to build you know, our businesses, how we're trying to take care of and have and have integrity with. Our, and honesty with our franchise owners um, that, you know, that's super important. What a great piece of advice. We haven't heard that one yet, you know, leading with integrity. And I think that's clearly contributed to a lot of your success and kind of how you lead um, and mentor others. So thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you for sharing your story. You had so much wisdom to share with our listeners. So thank you, Sam. I thank you guys. It. Thank you, Sam. Thank you, Britt. It was uh, a lot of fun. Thanks a lot. If you would like us to find your next match, you know where to find us. You can email us at info at franpathconsulting.com. Follow the FranPath Consulting podcast on Apple or Spotify. Find us on Instagram at FranPath, Facebook and LinkedIn at FranPath Consulting, or go to our website at franpathconsulting.com to fill out your free business assessment. Have a great week.